Hey, Scoot here, back with a new episode of Scoot Talk Sports. I was lucky enough to chat with Jeff Paulus, current technical director of Edmonton Scottish United SC, head coach of the Northern Alberta Institute for Technology, and the former head coach of FC Edmonton in the Canadian Premier League. We discussed his love of sports from childhood, which ended up turning into a lifelong career. Really excited to share this conversation with you. Small apology, as the quality of my microphone during this interview isn't as good as where I'd want it to be. Uh, if you are using Spotify, quick reminder that you can find a Q&A section to provide your feedback on episodes. Other than that, let's get into Scoot Talks Sports, episode 11, and I appreciate you listening. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us here on Scoot Talk Sports. Been looking forward to an opportunity to chat with you the last few weeks. So I'm really happy you were able to make the time for it. So thank you very much for hanging out with a random Canadian podcaster here. Well, thanks for wanting to talk to a random Canadian coach. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. So a lot of us are familiar with your time in the Canadian Premier League and in a few other places, but I thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to chat and talk a little bit of your roots in the game and those sorts of things. So the first question I have is when you were growing up, what was your first memory of sport? Was it, was it football? Was it hockey? Was it something else? And, and what do you remember about that? Yeah, it, it's actually, it was hockey. I was four or five years old, quite young. My dad was an avid hockey fan as, as I think every Canadian was 50 some odd years ago. I remember going down to our local rink, Broadlands ice rink. It was an outdoor rink, had all the kit, you know, very first day I've never been on ice before. They put me in all this equipment, you know, basically an armor. And I go on the ice and I can't move because I've never skated before. I was freezing cold. I couldn't skate. Didn't really do much for about an hour. I came inside, took off all my stuff, had a hot chocolate and looked at my mom and said, I don't want to play this. And that was it. That was my first and last experience with ice hockey. Yeah. So there's my first sports memory right there. That's, you know what? It's very typical though. You get dressed up, dragged out to the outdoor rink, right? And it's sort of a... Some of us look forward to coming back in for the treat and other of us look forward to get back out there. I was kind of in the middle, so I totally understand right, that. Right, right. Did you have a sporting hero when you were growing up as a kid? Did you have like a, an athlete that you looked up to? You know what's really funny, actually? It might, it might when I was really young have been Brian Budd because of the, I don't know, I, I don't know how old you are, but <laughs> we used to have these, uh, there used to be this competition and it was the, you know, athletes from different sports and they would compete almost like in a decathlon and they would find that, you know, the best athlete he would win as a soccer player. And uh, he became kind of my, my, my hero for that. Yeah. Random, but it was because of watching this, you know, every Saturday, I think it was every Saturday afternoon it was on or something along those lines. And so that became it. And then I think being a fan of Toronto sports teams in general, being a Torontonian growing up, you know, with the Jays, of course, and their world series wins and the blizzard many years ago, the original, you know, Toronto blizzard. And then, Anyhow, that was, that was probably, and of course, all the old, the ex sleep stars. And I, I wouldn't say I really had one specific. Yeah. I mean, that again, sounds very typical for a Canadian. You're, you're all over the place with sports. It's whatever's mm-hmm. close by. Right. When did you get into soccer specifically? At six, about the age of yeah. six, really young elementary school. And we had a family moved here from Scotland. Well, moved to Toronto from Scotland into my neighborhood, Colin Groves. And he had two brothers, but they were of course, soccer players and that's all they knew. And so him and I got got on for whatever reason, started kicking a ball together, and that became my sport because uh, they played it. And and that became my sport from that day forward. That was my start. That's a family moving here from Scotland. It's it's interesting, those connections, right? The Remembering mm-hmm. kind of those kids' influences as you're growing up. 
So was that before, I guess, you got into St. Andrews or Woburn or some of those kind of youth youth clubs? Yeah, it really was. It really was. And then I started off at Wexford just in the house league program, which they ran. So their grassroots I went through there. And I was very fast as a kid. You wouldn't know that now by looking at me, but I was very quick. I would do track 100 meter, 200 meter. And because of that, I was a left winger. I was also left footed. And something with someone identified me playing house league and brought me up to a club, a competitive program, I think at the age of about 12 with Wexford. And then there, I was never a top, top player, but I was quick and could get down the line and get a ball in. And I was tenacious and quite physical and very aggressive. So I always had a spot on somebody's team. And then I just kind of went through different clubs. St. Andrew, as you mentioned, Woburn, I don't, those clubs don't exist anymore. Wexford still does, which is great. Maple Leaf was another club, a good club that I, that I played under, but yeah. Yeah. So it's always interesting doing a little bit of research and finding all these little community clubs or soccer clubs that may have existed. As we know, in Canada, mm-hmm. there's always kind of a little bit of a, I don't know, cycle or rotation for some of these things, especially in the past. But yeah. being able to remember those things, that's very cool. You gave yourself a very good scouting report, too. I have to say, you know, oh. tenacious, quick. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to you sign go. you right now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there might be a few teams in the CPL right now that could use that. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Speed's always a winner. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Personally, it's always tough to find kind of information on on Wikipedia, but I did see that you went through high school and then you kind of made a decision around school. Did you join the military or did you go to Dalhousie first? I couldn't really figure that out. Military. Yeah, military. So I wanted to be a soccer player, but again, I wasn't a top, top player, not a national team level player, not even a professional level player, really. But I love the game and I went to Seneca College more so, so I could keep playing soccer at least at the collegiate level go on from there and but I got injured you know a few games really one game in my first game actually and I got injured and I didn't see out the season I realized I wasn't there for school I'm just there to play a game so I quit and that's when I decided to join the military get out of Toronto get out of you know everyone's got different paths in life and you know different groups that you hang out the periods of time and it was a good time for me to leave Toronto because maybe my environment and, and certainly some of the people I hung out with was probably a good thing for me to leave and get away from the environment that I was currently in where I didn't have soccer or school. So, so I did that. My grandfather was in the Navy, in the Canadian Navy, served on the Haida, which is actually the ship, the, the ship museum that's at Ontario Place. So that's a bit of history there, kind of cool. So that's kind of what made me join the military. And that got me out to Halifax. My first warship, of course, was the Fraser, an old minesweeper, or uh, sorry, not minesweeper, a sub hunter. And, uh, and then I got onto the new frigates, the Halifax and Charlottetown. So that's met my first wife there, but decided that military life wasn't for me long-term. Started going to school, Dalhousie. My first year was online. It's University of Manitoba, actually. They've got a great <laughs> online program that the military is, is a partner with. And then realized I love school again, which I hated when I was young. So that led me to get out and go to Dal. Well, when you were in the military, was was mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to think of what that experience would be like, not only playing some sports and man, I think you were, were managing or coaching a little bit when you were yeah. there, but also working your butt off probably all the time mm-hmm. and on these, these different deployments. Do you remember playing? And we always talk about this because we see it on those Canadian forces ads, but did you ever get a chance to play soccer on the, on the top of the ship or were you on a ship that even had space for that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I was on a, a, a frigate and the new, the new um, Canadian patrol frigates that, that were, that actually came out during that time. Halifax was the first one. We had a flight deck, so you could play basketball on there and in calm seas or when the ship was alongside. You could pass a ball around. We didn't on ships a whole, a whole lot uh, with a soccer ball, but you could certainly, you know, throw a baseball, play a bit of basketball, and we would do that for sure all the time on a ship, actually. And yeah, but a lot of my sailing was North Atlantic 
and you wouldn't want to be on the upper decks in the North Atlantic. Yeah, and just yeah, you know, and, and crazy rough seas. But I loved it. I loved the military experience. I loved it, and it's very much like a sports team because you're you're on a warship, and you know you've got to support each other. And and the warship will only, especially if you ever got into a combat situation, but the warship's only going to survive if 230 men are working together. And men and women. My ship was all men, which is why I said that. But if, if you're working together, it's just the same as a, a soccer team finding success. So for me, it was very much leaving a, a sporting world into, a, yes, a military world, but very much the same kind of characteristics and, and qualities and individuals that you needed to, to find success. So yeah, it was, it was good for me. And then on the leadership side is really what the military gave me and what led me into having a really deep appreciation for coaching and wanting to become a leader in, in things that I do in life. So I can thank the military for that. It's always interesting hearing those connections and what you take away from some of those moments, right? Especially years later right. when you look back. So you then went and took a degree, I think, in history and sociology in Del at Dalhousie, correct? Mm -hmm. And then I did. after that, you ended up going and taking a Bachelor of Education at Arcadia? Arcadia, yeah. Great school. Then, <laughs> yeah. So you'd say you love learning. It, it definitely shows, right? Mm -hmm. And then you, I think you mm -hmm. finished it up with a master's degree in business administration. So talk about, you know, a lot of the education and life experience kind of in those, those years, for sure. Was there anything that you really loved about any of those schools, like in terms of the three that you kind of went to, or what kind of drove you to go to each one? So history, sociology, education, mm -hmm. and then business admin. Yeah, so Dalhousie, Bachelor of Arts, that I, I went there first actually because I wanted to pursue law and I wanted to do environmental law. And Dalhousie was, uh, their law school was the first law school to introduce environmental law, the only school in Canada doing it. So I wanted to go into law school initially and, uh, and go that route. Didn't work out because of my LSAT, but I also didn't want to, you know, keep waiting and waiting. I wanted to because by this time I was probably, when I graduated at Dal, I was around 30. So I wanted to, you know, get into a career here. I was doing some coaching in the military. I was doing coaching for a local club, Halifax County United. I love that part of it. I loved what what I was able to give back to the game as a coach. And uh, so then I thought, you know, teaching is, is coaching and coaching is teaching. So that led me into that education route then. So Acadia has a fantastic education program. I was able to get into there right away. Delight. I love it. So there are different schools. The house is a big school and of course a very historical school, beautiful campus, beautiful buildings. But you're, you're quite anonymous at that school. Acadia is much smaller. It's in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. It's a small, small town where half the population are students. Just a great vibe, great, great experience, really good people. I was an assistant bar manager there as well. So at night times I got to work at the, yeah, I was running the university bar and having a blast with that. I felt like Van Wilder being, you know, the oldest guy at the campus, but having a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah really good. And then it was just, it was actually you know, with FC Edmonton uh, during the NASL days is when I started my MBA. When I was doing that, and I'm still doing, I'm not quite finished that yet. I, I've taken a break just because of the, the workload and a couple of courses are crazy hard for someone that's not a math person. But I wanted to start doing that for the leadership. When MBA is, is there's some very good courses on leadership and management. And, and this is why I went that route. It really has no benefit to my career path at the moment. I don't see myself getting into business in any capacity where the MBA is going to be a, a selling feature of, you know, of why you would hire Jeff Paulus. But for me, it's just about, you know, we ask whether I'm teaching, which I'm teaching again, part-time part while I'm still doing a TD job at a youth club. But, you know, we continuously ask young children to keep learning. We continuously ask players to learn. And if we're not doing that ourselves, then it's almost hypocritical. It's almost, we think we know all the answers. So, Education is a big part of who I am because I think that that 
makes me what's the word I want to use there. I think it validates my, my belief in what others to learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that makes total sense. If you, if your leaders are saying you got to learn, it's a lifelong commitment and they're sitting back and not doing anything, then yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's something that students or players especially will notice. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so jumping kind of back into your coaching career, I guess we'll say your move to Alberta, you kind of talked a bit about that there with the business administration studies, but what brought you out to the Northern Alberta Institute for technology when you first decided to move out there? Was it the coaching position or life or? <laughs> it was, yeah, my, you know, my, my current missus is upstairs right now. So I don't know if she'll hear me or not, but you know, I'm, I'm in Alberta because my first wife was a nurse in the military and she was posted to one field ambulance, which is right here, just outside of Edmonton. So that is what got me out here. When you yeah. first moved, did you have plans when you got out here? Or was it sort of following along with the wife and then kind of see what would happen? You know what? I was fortunate because I was just finishing up my, my education degree at the time. And so I came out, we came on a house hunting trip. I still had to do one more or one semester. I think it was 10 weeks I had to do of my final practicum to graduate. So we found a house that was in St. Albert where I, where I you know currently live, the city I currently live. And just down the street was a high school, Paul King. And so I, I popped in for a visit and I, I asked if I could arrange my final practicum there so I could get out to Edmonton sooner. And uh, they agreed. And without knowing me, they, they let me come in and do my practicum there. And then, so that's really, so for me, it was, it was, you know, the opportunity to work as a teacher, first and foremost, that was going to be my, my life. And they accepted me. They offered me a full-time job right after my practicum. So it worked out really well. I think I was here for maybe four weeks and then I went down to St. Albert Soccer Club. And I uh, had an interview for a coaching job for U14 boys. Graham Woods, Kevin Jones, and Dave Underwater were the ones that interviewed me. Graham Woods to this day is still my mentor. He's one of the most fantastic people in soccer that I've that I've met, certainly in my time, most humble. And, and he became a big part of my success in the game in this province. Kevin Jones is the principal of the school that I, I teach at right now and who, I, who still is the president of St. Albert Soccer to this day. So... My ties to that club are, are, are incredible and the importance of it. So I, I just, you know, again, I think I've been very fortunate by coming out here and some of the opportunities given to me. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it just it, taking what life offers you for sure, right? And, and that's, yeah. it's very interesting yeah. to hear those things, especially the fact that you're still connected with some of those guys, including your mentor, right? It's mm-hmm. Those connections mean so much. So when did that Northern Alberta Institute for Technology job come up? Because of course I'm, I'm gleaming as much as I can from what's available on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. So Nate, so again, it's amazing how, how your life works out and, and the different paths that everyone is going to take. And, you know, and I'll get into this later, maybe if it comes up about how I eventually made it into the CPL, but I think that what I always believed and my background in the game of football and my growth in the game is, is so so different than say a Tommy Wielden juniors or a Stephen Hartz or a Rob Gale. Mine is, is, you know, every Canadian coaches maybe dream a little bit because I didn't play pro and, and, uh, you know, I came through the Canadian system. I don't have an accent and uh, not saying that accent, I'm not blaming those guys for that. Trust me. They, they've all deserved what they've gotten for who they are, but yeah. you know what I mean? In Canadian football many years ago, you know, you, the accent was was uh, your ticket in for sure into the highest levels it meant that you knew more but nate was important so so i moved into st albert i went down to st albert soccer they gave me i had an interview i said Grandwood was on that panel Grandwood at the time was also the head coach of nate so i had a summer season with st albert we had, we had a lot of success with this u14 team and a lot of success in just developing players and bringing a group of players together 
Graham watched a lot of this. He recognized that. And I still remember it was the end of year awards banquet for all the coaches. They gave me a little award for, I think, coach of the year that year for the club. And that night over a couple of pints of Guinness with Graham, he offered me to be his assistant coach at Nate. I was Graham's assistant for two years. And then he, it was time for him to step down. He'd been there for many, many years and he was stepping down and offered me, then they offered me the head coaching job. So even my, even getting Nate, because Nate really kicked off my career and gave me a chance to work with higher level athletes and older athletes in a really serious environment. It was just really good fortune. I mean, we bought a house in St. Albert. I went down to the club and asked for, you know, a, a volunteer youth job. And then next thing you know, I'm coaching a college team, you know, two years later, really, but yeah. Good fortune. Couldn't ask for it any, in any other way, right? It's just one of those things that yeah. ended up lining up. So it did. You became the 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 head coach as they as listed. I think it was head coach, manager, whatever you want to call yeah. it. But you ended up yeah. winning a title in October 2011. What what was your memories of that title season and and what made made that team as good as it was? Yeah, incredible. That team still gets together and celebrates as often as they can. You know, well, at least once a year. They do. I missed this last one because I was sick with COVID, but a special team, a special year. Nate, so we we built over the six years that I was head coach at that program. You know, we were, we became a powerhouse in Alberta. I think we only lost six games and, and well, we only lost six games in the eight years I was involved. It's league play. Only six games we lost in my eight years I was involved with Nate. In the final seven of eight years in the provincial final, lost some provincial finals, probably shouldn't have. But the year, so the year before, what made this one special was the year before, now we made it to the final against VIU. And amazingly, it was James Merriman's dad who was coaching that team. And I'm not sure if James was on the team that year or quit the year before. He might have been on that team. We lost them in penalties. We had them one nothing up. It was in, right at the end of regulation. It was about the 93rd, 94th minute. The whistle was about to blow. We had a free kick just on our side of half. And we're yelling at our defender just to kick it into the corner. I should have just said, play it back to our keeper. I made a mistake. There's a massive coaching mistake by me. But anyhow... We didn't kick it into the corner. We kicked it straight to their keeper's hands. He ran out, drop kicked it as far as he could. That same defender missed it on the bounce, went over his head. Oh, their striker no. went in and scored. Put the ball at half, put the ball at the center circle, ref blew the whistle, so now we're going to extra time. We lost that game in penalties. Heartbreak, and we had a great team mm -hmm. that year. So the next year, we are right back at it. A lot of the same players. Just we had so much depth, and we had so much quality. And, you know, Tiago Silva was a player who came over from Brazil who was just an absolute standout all-star. If it was, if the CPL was around when Tiago was on Nate, Tiago would be playing at the CPL. We had about five or six players on Nate that would be CPL players had it existed during that time. Dominant program. And then, so when, when we won it in 2011, that was 2010, we lost the final. 2011, we won it. We were, yeah, we were just a dominant, dominant side, strong in every position. We lost Tiago to a, a ridiculously you know, brutal challenge that was intentional uh, in the mm -hmm. semifinal. He wanted to play in the final, came out in the final, still played against everyone's advice, but the physio cleared him at the time and said, if he can deal with the pain, he can play. So he went, went in, did what he could, but still just his influence, you know, seeing him fight it out. It turns out he had a broken ankle, broken foot, sorry. And he played on that in the final game. We didn't find that out for six weeks after we were home. And that was just the character of the team. He was one piece of that. This guy's like, you know, Kyle Saban, Zach Kaiser, Austin Berry, my, just so many players that were of quality. And so that's why it was so special, you know, and for us, it was just, you know, for for eight years, we were so close to, to be able to win almost every year and uh, to finally win it after it was our seventh year was great. And the final year we made nationals again, but 
it's just not the same group. We we had we lost our center backs to injury. So my final year twenty twelve was difficult because we got knocked out. I think we finished sixth at nationals and you know, and then that's when I left for FC Edmonton. But yeah, I love Nate. Uh, I'm back there again. You know, they've just handed me the men's team again. So I'll be back coaching Nate men um, starting this September. Yeah. Yeah. That's everything's cool. coming around full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Great memories and now an opportunity to create some new memories. It's incredible sometimes what these athletes will do to get out on that field. Like you mentioned, a broken ankle or a broken foot. That's that's not oh, easy yeah. to play on. But. No, I mean, we had Adam Artotsi was on that team. Milan Roberts, players that played for me at FC Edmonton. So the team was just, yeah, we were stacked. We were so good. So while you were coaching at Nace, I think you were also working in the Prairies National Training Center as well, a little bit? I was. I um, was. So you were working yeah. with players between 14 and 17, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about what that program was about? Yeah, that program was across Canada, set up by the Canadian Soccer Association. And so it was basically in every region, you would take the top 14 and 17 year old male and female players and you would train them, you know, two to four times a week. Ours was twice a week on field and twice a week in the gym. Uh, I'm not really sure what we use the gym for, but that was the program. Yeah. Sean Fleming was running that. He was the director of the Prairie region. So in, in charge of Alberta, Thomas, Saskatchewan. And then my first two years, I, I asked if I could come in and watch what they do. They had Sean Fleming running it. They had one of the, the best soccer minds I've ever come across in Burt Goldberger, as far as his knowledge of the game and tactics and, and, and team. And so for the first two years, I seriously sat down and watched them run sessions, help clean up soccer balls at the end, you know, pick up cones at the end to do my part, to, you know, as a thank you for letting me kind of really get a two year education for free in soccer and coaching. And then my third year I was hired on as a, as a staff member. So that was a, that was a thrill for me. Cause again, I'm just this kid from Toronto. You know, that, that loved football and uh, really loved the leadership aspect of coaching and was going to, was always intended to coach. I, I enjoy it. Love it. Always have, but at a volunteer basis. So then you start getting some of these jobs that you don't expect and working for Nate and getting paid and being in an, in an NTC and getting a bit of money from Canada soccer to, mm -hmm. to do what you assumed you just do for free for the rest of your life. And uh, so a highlight of my career was that program. And then plus you're working with great players, you know, 14 to 17 years old and top, top athletes so that pushes you because now you you have to you have to be ready and 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 those kids those kids will suss out if you're not up for it so a lot of stress came with that every when you're at especially my first session that the stress around my first session with those players was through the roof as you can imagine so yeah great experience and i'm still thankful for that and i'm still thankful for sean providing me the opportunity it is very cool to hear about how a lot of it is that you show up, right? And maybe you're not there to get paid. You yeah. show up, you're consistently there to help out, and those opportunities end up coming your way. So I think you worked with them until 2011. You won the title with Nate in late fall, I guess, 2011. When did the FC Edmonton opportunity start to kind of come about? Yeah, so again, it's it's amazing. The opportunities that some people can be afforded based on situations that you've again either been fortunate to get or work to get or whatnot so of course because i was coaching the college team and i was at ntc so i was able i was getting i was getting to know more and more people i've worked for the provincial association as a provincial coach for about three or four years so just getting to know more and more people when fc edmonton started it was uh, dwight Lota vegas that was here their exhibition year i remember going for a lunch with with dwight Lota vegas joe petroni and Kevin Passant, who I work with right now, Kevin's the executive director of Scottish and on the TD there at the moment. So we went for a meeting because Kevin and I were both working together with the Edmonton Scottish Major League men at the time, which was a top amateur men's side in the region. 
And Joe had brought us to lunch to see if we'd be interested in starting up an academy and what would that look like? And is that something we'd be interested in? Well, Dwight ended up leaving that year to Japan. And so that connection was kind of lost. And then so was all the talk about the South Hampton Academy. I was also at the time when I was teaching at Paul Kane, I was running their academy for the school and I was running it. So in St. Albert, we have this like little rec, uh, community rec center. I, I think a lot of community across the country has these things now with the pool and, you know, what we had a couple, cause it's Alberta. So we had rinks for indoor soccer. So we had a couple of rinks that we played indoor soccer on. I was running a session one afternoon with our, with our school team. And, and I see this fella looking through the glass, this, you know, older Italian gentleman, Joe Petroni, who I, I knew of, not, I didn't know him well. I had one meeting with him, but I didn't know him all that well, but he was watching through the window and he waited for me. So I came out and he had said he was, he was just chatting with Graham Wood and Paul Kelly, where they're having a coffee and they had suggested he come and talk to me about starting the F. Samuelson Academy. And he says, I've just been watching what you've been doing there. You look organized. And it's funny today because, I mean, I had cones down and I had players in pennies and we were playing, you know, so if that looked organized, great. And that, that kicked off meetings with us, you know? And so I thought, yeah, why not? You know, this is, uh, this is something I never in a million years thought would ever come to someone like me. So I took the opportunity and I wasn't ready for it. I, I can say that. But again, I think that you, you know, you have to take a chance on yourself sometimes. And I did that. And that's how it started. So next thing I know, I'm on a leave of absence from school, which the school board gave me four years to leave of absence to keep doing this. But I was on leave of absence from school. I start this academy. I'm working for Harry Sinkerhoven and Hans Schreiber, the two, you know, coaches of FC Edmonton, both Dutch A licensed instructors for the KNBB. I mean, top, top football people. And and here's this, you know, little old me and terrified. And uh, but in that one year, the education I received from those two, you know, things that that I did that everyone did locally. And we all did it because that's the way it's always been done or whatever it is, but they challenged me in so many things that, that I was doing and that I was doing poorly, quite honestly. And they would challenge me on this. I'm, I never had answers. I'm like, well, that's because of what everyone does. Okay. Well, everyone's doing it wrong then. You know, they were very blunt about that. And so that year education fee was massive. The first month was the most difficult, uncomfortable, humbling experience of my life, you know, just getting none of it right, quite honestly, but, but persevering. And that was really what got me in the door. So again, circumstance, benefits of, you know, knowing Graham Wood and, and Paul Kelly, who sent Joe my way. That's how I got the job. When you first, when you first jumped in there, where was it, you were just working with the Academy or were you also coaching the, the senior squad a little bit as well? So I was expected to also be at all the senior squads training as I'll loosely say as a second assistant, because there was times where the three of us would be standing together and those two are talking Dutch and I don't speak Dutch. So you know, second assistant, maybe, I guess if I wanted to go out into the public and brag about something, I, I would say that, but maybe not so true. I was expected to be there. And that was great because again, that's also a free education for me. So I took it that way. Yeah, it was an interesting year. It was, it was, you know, again, I think my growth as a coach though, really kicked off with those two. So even though there was moments that were uncomfortable for me, I think I'm so thankful for that. But so did you travel when they were in the NASL with, with the senior squad? you remember some of those ridiculous flights that others have shared with me? <laughs> so that year, yeah, the only time I traveled that year was to was for preseason. And we went to Arizona, Casa Grande for about two weeks. That was the only time, but that was great because I got to see what a professional team did for a two-week for, for a good portion of preseason. 
Um, that was exciting for me. That was a good experience. After that, though, I didn't travel. It was my job was I was at home and any players that didn't travel would come to academy sessions. So I was running, I was coaching first team players with the academy on those sessions. And that's, that's tough because you're dealing with, you know, pros that are pissed off that they're not traveling because every professional player thinks they should be on the top as they should. And uh, so that was, that was tough, but, but good again for my growth and being out of your comfort zone. But I got to know all the players that way. And I was always the, the manager that would, you know, I like to put my arm around a player. That's why you know, this day, I don't mind saying I'm a better at the professional game. I'm a better assistant coach than head coach, I think, because my personality. But yeah, I didn't get to travel. Now, they both got let go. They both got fired at the end of the year. And then Colin Miller was hired. And then I became Colin's, you know, first assistant. And uh, at that point, then I was now just a coach on the first team, still directing the academy. I had coaches that I hired to, to be on-field coaches, but I still did a lot of the on-field, even though I still go and do on-field coaching. But yeah, then I was those ridiculous road trips you're talking about. I experienced far too many. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was something that I've, anyone who's ever played for the FC Edmonton team that I was had a chance to talk to those trips, the, there's no direct flights from a lot of those places. It's a lot of hopping. Oh, so no. It sounded a little nuts. No. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were nuts. Honestly. Oh my, I, we had 10 hour layovers. I mean, we were getting into places like Carolina at three in the morning because of delays and flights at different terminals going through. I spent more time that year. I probably spent more time in the Denver and Chicago terminals than I spent at home. That's what I felt, you know, where it was crazy. It was crazy, but NASL was a great league, a really good league, really good. There, it's, it's yeah. What I've heard from everyone is, you know, the one side's travel and then everything else positive, had a fantastic time, loved playing lots of great memories. Yeah. But then of course the NASL ended up kind of, going 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 uh, i guess bankrupt would be the right word but they said the, the league yeah. failed and in that time between kind of fc edmonton existing in the nasl uh, nasl and then the eventual inaugural season of the canadian premier league what were you busy doing in that time with fc edmonton was it just the academy still doing the academy and then but also to help offset the cost for tom my local club st albert they didn't have a td at the time so what i did was i, I worked out an arrangement where i would come in and during that it was about an eight-month period where I was the TD of St. Albert Soccer. I came in and helped set up some programming, working with a good friend of mine, Chris Spadell, who's the executive director there, and doing the academy for FC Edmonton as well. Yeah, it was it was busy, but it was good. We didn't know. Initially, I didn't know if Tom was going to come back or not. And then I still remember getting the phone call that he was in and that I'd be his manager. So that was but it was an interesting time of, of unknowns, what was going to happen for me. It was interesting just from a third party standpoint to see the commitment in keeping that club going and in keeping the academy going mm -hmm. and while they didn't have a league to really put the senior team in right. consistently right so did you have a sense of that canadian premier league coming did you hear about kind of that development were you involved in discussions around that or was that something that i wasn't purely, no. purely when you got the job offer so <clears throat> what i can say is is initially i had no idea i mean i was I was as informed as anyone else out there on social media, I guess, or hearing things through the grapevine. Even Tom was pretty tight-lipped about it. As it started getting, you know, once the rumors started getting pretty heavy about FC Edmonton at that point, and that's when, you know, I did meet with Tom and we discussed it. And then I knew he was he was interested and he was serious. And this was probably about, I don't know, two months before we officially launched as a team, before we had our kind of thing on White Ave and announced that we were going CPL. So yeah, but no, I was like everybody else. Yeah, this, this is, uh, no, no one believed it. Yeah. 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's one of those things where if you can easily look up on Wikipedia more failed soccer or football leagues in Canada than you would, you know, successful ones, right? So it's always one of yeah. those things yeah. where people absolutely probably question it first. But obviously, you did end up getting hired as the FC Edmonton manager, the the head coach, as well as the general manager for that inaugural season. What was kind of your first, your big takeaways from that year? Obviously, it didn't go as well as you'd hoped. But what was that mm-hmm. that season like? And what was it like jumping into a league that was just starting? Like, it must have been a lot of things on the fly here and there. That was, yeah, it was it was interesting, that one. You know, that, that year, I think. So I came into it feeling enor- enormous pressure. Uh, and I felt that because, of course, everyone knew, you know, FC Edmonton has existed. We weren't a new club. We're not starting from scratch. We have a history. And we, we you know, in 2017 or 20. 20- 16 sorry we had a very very good nasl season making it to the semis losing to indianapolis and there was a lot of belief here but i think i think i i took too much of that pressure on that we have to be the best team right from day one because we're the only team that actually already exists so i wore that then i combined that with wanting to wanting to be true to who i was and i was always a believer in in the young edmonton soccer player i always believe we had good players here that just never got the same opportunities as they do in in ontario so i wanted to really showcase players here, which is why even some of the senior players I brought back in were, you know, had been long, they'd left Edmonton many, many years ago. I wanted to bring them back. Like Randy, for example, is a player I wanted to bring back in and build a team around. I would say then, I would say that with the pressure of, of having to be the best team or being expected to be the best team from day one, combined with a complete misreading of the level of play in year one, I totally misread that you know i i brought in players that that were good nasl players i brought in players that i thought their experience would be too much to handle for many young canadian athletes that have no professional experience in the game which was a lot of players in the cpl year one a lot of university players right and yeah ontario league one players and whatnot players at that level so i i figured that uh, you know this group this core group of veterans i had brought back in would would just be a bit too much and we would find success doing this when combining with the young edmonton player that i wanted to then also add into that mix. So I just, I misread the league right from day one. And and I signed some contracts to players that made my life difficult in 2020 in PEI and not to blame the players on this at all. But, you know, when you've done a job and you've already misread the league, the level of play, and you've got players locked in for two years, you can't make many changes in your second year as well. So it was going to be always, I, I knew this was going to be a, a longer process for me to get it right. And year three, which I never got to, unfortunately, because year three for me, all through PEI, all through the preparations for PEI, year three for me was the year that I knew I could turn everything around because I left us. We were we were probably the club that was in the best shape as far as salary cap. We had no, we only had two players that were in, into a, a contract for that upcoming year. So a lot of flexibility to make you know unnecessary changes. And that being said, though, at the end of the day, as I admitted in PEI, I, I was probably one of those necessary changes myself. So the new manager, I always thought, would come into this amazing situation in year three because they had unlimited cap space to build the roster of their choosing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the, the, because the first few years, even as again, a, a kind of an observer of the league, it was, we were noticing a lot of one year deals and it was like, there was that hesitation. Yeah. To commit. And I can remember a lot of us talking about, wow, that FC Edmonton really has that belief, right. And that, that creating yeah. that, that core, but there's also the risk side of that. Right. So if it doesn't work out, it's harder to get rid of someone. So it's interesting you're sharing that. There's that. And I think it's also how you want to approach uh, people. And I think, again, 
and this maybe, and this is where I say I was a really great assistant coach with Colin Miller because I was the guy that was able to go to every player, put my arm around them, lift them up if they weren't getting playing time, make them feel better and be that, but really care about the athlete. And I think that, you know, these one-year deals are tough. They're tough on, on these young kids because they're getting a chance at a very low salary. You're asking them to give up a year of their life. And then if you don't pick them up or whatnot. So for me to bring in players, for me to bring in my international players, I wanted to give them a home for two years. I didn't want to just use players. And not to say coaches are doing it. now. I'm not throwing any blame or criticism to anybody else. That was just my philosophy. I wanted players to have a place that was guaranteed, a place where they, especially, you know, Ramon came here with his wife. I wanted him to have a home. I don't want him to have to, you know, move and move and move and move every year because of these one-year deals, which I think, you know, are not really fair for a lot of these kids. <clears throat> so that's the route that I went. And, hey, I'm the one that's unemployed in the CPL, so I guess the other ones did it right. But I still stand by what I did, to be fair. You know, and that's the, that's really interesting to hear that, you you know what, you stuck to with your philosophy. There's no regrets there. You did your best shot. And, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a sense – you know, that these opportunities, like you mentioned, you continue to work, these opportunities come back around, right? So we never know what might happen next. But when you did step down, did you have a plan of what you were going to do next? It was Edmonton Scottish kind of, you'd worked with them in the yeah. past, you've mentioned a few times. So did you kind of feel like you had a place to go? You had more work to do? Yeah, I actually had the the Edmonton Scottish, you know, that my, my going there as a technical director, that was arranged and set up before I left PE. So I knew I was going to that. When I got back home, it was already a done deal. Very thankful to Edmonton Scottish, you know, at the time for the conversations and, you know, for providing me my next step. Yeah, but that, I knew that. Like I, PEI was, when I went on air a few times in PEI and kind of said my piece and I tried to be, I always tried to be honest when, in the CPI. I always tried to, in interviews, just be who I am. And I uh, wasn't always appreciated by the higher ups in the CPL. I speak my voice and I uh, wasn't their favorite for it, but I'd rather be honest and I'd rather be, you know, critical of things that I see are are not being done right. But I was honest then. And so, yeah, when I, I had my job lined up before I got off the plane. So yeah. for those who aren't familiar with Edmonton Scottish, because there's a few, a few of us who aren't as familiar, especially Winnipeg, I, I had to go look up at the website and I was like, oh, wow, this is really right. established. A lot of programming going on here. Tell us a little bit about Edmonton Scottish and what they do for, for the, the soccer community there. Yeah, a historic club, especially at the senior level, <clears throat> men's and women's. The Angels are part of the Edmonton Scottish, you know, brand. And of course, with Stuart Brown many years ago, the Edmonton Angels are a Hall of Fame club program. Stuart Brown, as well as is a Canadian Hall of Fame, you know, manager. They've put out players like Janine Helen, for example, who now works for the club as the director of female programming. So really important club as far as, as that, that senior amateur level and really having some top, top players come through there, especially on the female side. Many years ago when the female game was still growing, it was one of the biggest programs in the country. But it, it's, you know, now there's a thousand youth players that, that play at Scottish, all programming from U4 right up to the, uh, what we call the AYSL. So that's our high performance league. So a, a club that has its national youth license along with St. Albert Sher Park as well uh, in, in Edmonton. So standards-based club, but again, they're, you know, a big impact of course is we have a dome and it's the largest indoor playing surface in Canada that's under a dome. So massive, you know, full field, 399 pitches. So it's just really become a very important, you know, organization here in Alberta, certainly and in probably Western Canada for its, its growth in the game, for what it wants to give to the game, for the history of its senior programming. 
it's really interesting you mentioned the dome too because it's something that i think canadian fans across the league maybe not so much in the toronto area but finding those indoor spaces to be able to play during the winter has always been tough especially when you don't want to play at an indoor rink with the ice boards up right like it's right uh, it's something that, that very unique for sure yeah Edmonton Scottish wise, what kind of kind of your favorite memories would you pick out from your time with, with Edmonton Scottish? Was there any sort of players or relationships or moments that kind of stick out in your mind with your time throughout your time at Edmonton Scottish? Right now it's these twenty eleven boys that I work with, quite honestly. You know, this will be a group of kids that will will always stay with me. Just they're incredible. I mean, the football that these kids play and the way that they're playing right now, when you watch them play. They, they look like they're, you know, 17-year-olds as far as their understanding of the game of football, the way they move a ball around, they use their space. And it's not about winning for us. I mean, the young kids never lose, but we never talk about that. We talk about how you play. Every game is a performance, and then every game we challenge ourselves versus the last game. And these, So these kids are brought back because I didn't want to coach again. When I left FC Edmonton, I was going to get into the more of the administrative side of the game. I love project building. I, I love building something. And uh, he gave me that chance, of course, with the CPL and, and our academy many years before that. And Scottish gave me the chance to, to really start to build a program there. But I didn't want to coach anymore. I was done. And then I was handed this team through circumstance. And, you know, they, they, re, yeah, they restored a passion for being on the grass and being with players. So I'm so thankful for these, uh, to these 10-year-old kids you know, for really saving my mind a bit. Yeah, so that will always that'll be the moment. These, these group of boys, for sure. So you talk a little bit about, you know, the amazing, the amazing kind of skills you're seeing with kids these days. Have you seen yeah. a transition in Canadian soccer from your time, maybe at the beginning of your career to now in terms of the way we train players? And is there something that we could be doing better in terms of our path to pro nationally? Like is, is what are your thoughts yeah. on those kinds of things? Yeah. So a big difference, I think, number one, in the quality of coaching and and I think you have more and more clubs now that are putting less an emphasis on winning because at the youngest ages, it's destroyed player development in this country. Not that you can't win. win Winning is actually a very good thing and it's healthy for sure. We want to create kids that like winning and are used to it. But if that's the end all be all, then then you're going to forget about actually giving players the skills, the, the skills required to play at a higher level in you know, Canadian club youth. That's changing slowly, but it, but I'm seeing a change there. I'm seeing kids that are more savvy now. I'm seeing kids that are, you know, again, I think our biggest weakness in the game here is, is just a lack of understanding of what to do when you don't have the ball. I've always believed that. We're starting to see this change. We're starting to see kids that can recognize their off-the-ball movements and support, whether it's attacking or defending. So I think that's been a big, mass, a drastic change. And part of that goes to maybe a lessening of the emphasis on winning. So I think there's some nice changes there. I think the the adoption of a national youth club license which affords these youth clubs that qualify for that license with Canada soccer so now all those players in those clubs count as domestic or homegrown players in the MLS I think that's a caveat I think that's a carrot but it holds these clubs to standards including the clubs that I'm involved with they hold you to a standard and there's governance standards there on how the board runs <coughs> there's facility standards and there's coaching standards and I think this has been a big change. So way different than when I was young growing up and you were just being yelled at by an old, you know, Scottish coach or an old British coach in Toronto. And you're, it was all about running and exercise and being fit than it was yet more of that than yet on the ball. It's reversed. So a big change. And I think as far as now, how do we continue to advance? But I think the CPL actually has a role to play in this. And they are. I mean, they're they're helping create these, you know, Ontario League One, which they own. They're, I know they've helped get, kind of establish BC League One. Hopefully we'll get a central league one here in the prairies. We need it. So 
Yeah, but I think the CPL, I think where, and this is going to be, you'll love this take, I'm sure, but <laughs> so I've always fought against the under 21 rule because I don't think it's young enough. I, I want to see a U19 rule in the CPL. If CPL is, is really intent on driving young Canadian players, if it's intent on creating a second economic or another economic model for our owners about selling players, and we've seen now some success, we'll then get these players in and get them playing minutes at, at that level sooner. So why shouldn't it be U19? U21 still allows university athletes to come in and eat up those minutes when they're not full-time pros. A 19-year-old eating up those minutes has probably made a choice to be a full-time pro. And there's a difference there for me. So, and I, I value the U-Sport programming. I value that pro that program. I think it's great, but I'm still, you know, I'm still referring to the 18-year-old the athlete that's made a, a decision that they want to be a professional footballer like they do all over the world. Well, then great, you know, get those players minutes. So U21 is not good enough for me. It should be U19. And then also I think the emphasis should be, because I know we've got the under 23 domestic rule or international program. We've yet to, since the program started, it's great. We've got this idea that we're going to bring in these international players that are under 23 that are coming from Europe. And then for some reason, we're going to develop them here in Canada and sell them back to the places that already didn't want to sign them. Doesn't make sense to me. never did. Let's focus on the young Canadians because what we've seen so far in the CPL is it's the young Canadians who are being sold. It's not the international players anymore. It's actually Canadian kids because that's where like the almost, you know, we're one of the last frontiers for player development where players now right to become a soccer hotbed. So that's, this is where I think the CPL has a big role to play. Makes a lot of sense too. And if you're talking, thinking about, you know, advantages of, of the Canadian Premier League from just a third party scouting, there's a mm -hmm. lot of information available on these players. The data is available. And so seeing yeah. some of these young Canadians moving over, you know, most recently, one of the players from Calvary got sold to Ross Victor, Pond, Victor which, Latour, yeah. yeah. Very, very cool, right? And, and here in, mm -hmm. in Winnipeg, we're holding our breath that Okio is not going as well, but that's the that's the rumor, right? And Right. On the one side, you're thinking, ah, it's, it's too bad for my club. But on the other hand, this is the purpose of the league. You want to have yeah. these opportunities and provide these. you got to be excited for these guys to have that opportunity and go out and, and, and mm -hmm. take that next step. So, yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. It's a, There are guys who are 2021 who eat up a lot of minutes who may not be the target of those kind of scouting reports or scouts from mm -hmm. other, uh, other places. So that's very cool that you shared yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what we're seeing with the, the top level men's and women's teams and nationally in, in Canada, it's a very exciting time, obviously, both the women coming off the Olympic gold medal and then you have the men who are obviously qualified for the World Cup and that's become a, mm. a massive story in its own. What do we have to do to keep this momentum going in terms of the development of, of players in Canada? Is, is, it, is Obviously, Canadian Premier League needs to grow. We want that clear mm -hmm. path. We want that standardization. But is there other things yeah. that are missing from our, from yeah. our kind of development path? Well, so the, the Canadian uh, Division Three which is the League Ones right now, PLSQ, Ontario League One, BC League One. Uh, let's expand that, which I know the CPL is interested in doing. So they've been, listen, the CPL has been great. Uh, I don't always agree with things. I'm never saying they're wrong. I just have a disagreement in some things. I would do it differently, that's all. But but they've been really important at growing the importance of these of these tier three, division three type leagues. So we need the expansion of those into the Maritimes and into central Canada, so the prairies. That's one step. Then the next step for me would be to then organically grow from those programs, organically grow a division two. 
don't create it. Don't make it false. Don't let people just buy a spot in. Let the top clubs in these regions find their way into something like that, right? The clubs that have a stadium already, the clubs that have a facility, training centers that governance-wise are doing it properly, let's let those become the Div 2 teams. And again, that'll they'll 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 filter out from the Tier 3. So let that happen. And then I think we need the expansion of this of the high-performance leagues, but we need to create a, a stronger scouting network for this. We need to create a stronger cross-Canada type competition for them. So there needs to be a reason for kids to go into this, to go into high performance. It's more expensive for kids. So why would they pay more money? So let's let's find a way to make that truly the spot for top athletes across the country, not just in pockets and regions. So there's that. And then the piece that I've always said from day one is is just that corporate corporate sponsorship, corporate buy-in, media buy-in to soccer in general and 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 yes we're, we i know we fight for it in the cpl and we want more recognition but it, this is across the country i mean there's more athletes that play our sport than any other sport except for swimming in our country so it's amazing to me well maybe now with all the stuff about hockey and i won't get into that but maybe now we're gonna maybe maybe canadian tire comes over to soccer now we'll see but yeah so those are the couple things for me i think that will will keep driving we'll keep driving the game forward here's a question for you and this is purely kind of out of my own interest in you know watching other other countries systems they're, they're the way that they handle their clubs do you ever see promotion relegation existing in this country no i don't yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, but i, I do don't. like your idea of the, the second tier should be defined by the clubs who belong there instead of yeah don't buy in yeah don't buy in because that's again it's and this is why though because that buy-in this is exactly why i don't believe we'll ever see promotion relegation how how could you have an mls owner who paid 300 million for their franchise, and that's all they are is franchises at the end of the day, like the CPL. How can someone pay $300 million and then be relegated to someone who paid $3 million for their franchise? It just makes no sense. And then plus again, the three the $300 million franchisee owners, well, they're also in, in 20,000 plus seat stadiums. So you all of a sudden go down you know, a level, you can no longer afford that stadium. It's gonna it'd actually kill the game. It would actually, you would see team after team folding most likely. So the system was set up to be franchises like all the other North American sports. And because of that, you, I just don't believe you'll ever see it. It's always that one question that's in the <laughs> forefront of a lot of people's minds. So I always like yes. to it, but the reality, to see reality it. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's well for me. That's why, yeah, that's why I see it. The reality is yes. I, I'd love to see it, especially, you know, again, Take FC Edmonton, you know, something I know very well off of is being near the bottom of the table, you know, in the CPL. Those games become a lot more meaningful for players. So in 2019, I was able to, we had a good run in 2019 during the middle of the season. We went 11 games, we only lost one in 11. We had some ties in there, but when it became, we we had a back to a weekend, it was, we drew in Calgary and then we lost in Winnipeg. And, and I don't know why we couldn't beat Winnipeg that year, by the way, because I thought we were better, but we never did beat you. Weird. So I actually, no, I, I'm lying. We, we won. We won the first game. We actually. I was going to say game. you guys. You, you yeah, guys yeah, yeah. The first game, guys. The first that game. Was our, that was uh, whenever we mm -hmm. met you first game, we'd lose. It was sort of a right, kind right. Of a tradition That's for us. Thing, we broke but, it this year. <laughs> yeah, but that. So the end of that year, though. So when after we had that really positive run, and I could have kept us playing. We were playing in a four-four-two, which is not a system that I'm a fan of, to be honest. But it enabled us to sit back in a in a you know a low to medium block, be very difficult to be scored on, which we were during that that good run. Look to counterattack, which we did well. I mean, we beat Forge a couple of games doing just that, keeping them from playing inside. 
we could have kept doing that. But once it became, once we though we had that really poor weekend and that kind of, at that point was like, okay, we're out of this. Like we're not going to be one of the two teams, obviously, you know, playing for a championship. I went back to a 4-3-3 to prepare for the next year. And then of course, when I did that, we went 10 games without a win. We tied a bunch, but we went 10 games without a win. If we had promotion relegation, I wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Yep. I was able to do able that. To now, of course you... Well, you wouldn't, and you and you wouldn't. So I think that again, we have to be careful what we ask for because a lot of these young players that we see now are developing and coming through are doing that because coaches can do that because you're, you know, typically your your job's not so much on the line in a league that doesn't have relegation. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Kind of a last question for you because I appreciate all the time you've taken today, Jeff. This has been a fantastic conversation. If I don't know if you're a reader, but I'm, I'm guessing you might be based on kind of your education. But if you were, if you, what are you reading right now? I always like to kind of pick on what people's brains. So what are you, what are you reading now? Or what have you read lately that you'd recommend? Football so or not? what I'm reading, yeah, what I'm reading right now is actually Raymond Varian's latest book. So Raymond Varian is for me, a game changer in, in, in football theory, football coaching. I've taken his online courses for the last year as well. And he's just, you know, he sees the game in a way that, the game is is all together, not segmented into different little pieces. So that's what I'm reading. Yeah, that's Raymond Bryan's latest book. It's usually a soccer book for me, to be fair. Yeah, I've got a couple online for the summer though, but it's uh, it's either that or a leadership book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very appropriate, right on, right, right on, right on point. Uh, I'm pro- I'm quite boring, predictable, I guess. Oh, not boring at all. Not at all. Not at all. World Cup. I always ask, because I love asking, what are your thoughts on Canada's group and how do you think we're going to do come winter? (laughs) Yeah, it's a tough group. It's a tough group, you know. So you'd hope that we can beat Morocco. I think that uh, Belgium, you hope to just stay in the game, quite honestly. And then Croatia could be a toss-up because I think that Canada's strengths actually lend well to Croatia's weaknesses. And I think that the pace... I think our pace could be a bit much on the counterattack for Croatia. It's a team that's kind of, you know, near the end of their player cycle with that group of players. So that'll be an interesting one. You know, of course, the quality of Croatia is is, is massive and the depth is massive. But again, we're we're so young and quick. Yeah, that could be that could be an interesting game for us if we can hold our keep ourselves in that into the second half with a chance. Then I think we have a chance. So. It's a it's a it's a very tough group, but it could have been tougher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's yeah, one of those things where I totally agree that that, that our, our pace, our counter is going to be something that hopefully surprises some of these teams. Maybe they won't give it as much credence as they think, but they will. Yeah. They will they'll be prepared, I'm sure. Oh, this, oh, listen, John Herbin is you've never met anybody more organized and detailed as this man. It's actually it's it's quite something. So they'll they'll be ready for every game. There'll be no surprises for his players. Well, thank you very much today for having a chat with me, Jeff. I really do appreciate your time. So Jeff Paulus, current technical director and upcoming head coach, I guess, back at, what did you Nate. call it? It was Nate, N-A-I-T, yeah. Northern Alberta Institute for Technology. So I'll be looking forward to seeing you back out coaching again. And it's great to hear that you found that spark. Those kids got you back into loving it again. Mm-hmm. So that's really yeah. good to hear. But thank you so much for your time, Jeff. Yeah, and, thank uh, you. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And mm, we'll, yes, we'll, we'll chat again soon. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Yeah, listen, thanks for this, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's appreciated. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Scoot Talk Sports. It's a real pleasure to be part of your day. You can listen to all previous episodes by searching for Scoot Talk Sports on your favorite podcast app. 
Scoot Talk Sports is recorded live on Twitch Sports, and you can be part of the audience. Follow me at twitch.tv slash scooter. That's twitch.tv slash S-C-O-O-T-R. You can also keep up to date with new episodes, discussion, and other content by connecting with me on Twitter. Twitter.com slash underscore S-C-O-O-T-R. You can find all the ways to connect with me using the link in my Twitter profile. Until the next episode, much love and have a good one.